0: we want to praise God here today because the passage that we're now dealing with is the place where God dwells. We uh, enter into the very last section of Exodus and you might say, whoa, wait a minute, the last section of Exodus? We have a long way to go yet. There are like 40 chapters or something here, right? But from here on out, it's really going to be dealing with the tabernacle. And we're going to see that God desires intimate communion and fellowship with His people. Now, as we enter into the last section, we realize what we covered last week, which was the Book of the Covenant. The Ten Commandments, the Book of the Covenant, the, the law that is given to Israel. And now we're going to find the fullest revelation of God's way out for the people, this Exodus The Israelites, we know, had a problem in Egypt. What was it? Well, they were in captivity. They were in captivity. They were in bondage. They had been in bondage in Egypt for quite some time. And what does that picture? Humanity's problem with sin. In bondage. And until somebody really realizes that they're in bondage, they don't know they need deliverance. Well, Israel knew they needed deliverance for a long time. That was their immediate problem. That's an immediate problem. And that was uh, was something that was on their minds constantly. But God had provided deliverance. So He took them out into the wilderness. But there was something needed even more than just being delivered out of that bondage. Right? He wants them to know Him. To actually know this great God. And so throughout that desert experience... He gives them one experience after another to start revealing a little bit about who He is. He kept revealing more and more. He revealed His power when you think of the dividing of the sea and all of the plagues that had been done previously. We see His grace. We see His compassion, His care for them as He gives them food, as He gives them water. And so he keeps showing how great of a God he is. His character is being shown and manifested to them, but there's still a problem. They have been given the law, and they think they can um, follow that law, this book of the covenant, and they say, "All that you say that we will do, that you do, that you say we will do." If I can put that out right. But he knows that still, yet they still have a problem because they can't follow that law, although they are committed to that. And when you do a covenant, you do commit to those details. That's in there. He wrote it all up. And they agreed to it. Now, God says, it's not enough to know about me, my character. You start seeing a lot more about God when you open up the law, don't you? And we see how great He is when you take the first four commandments. And then you take the second table of the law, and and it starts revealing really who God is and not only that, but really it's Christ, isn't it? Because he did, did follow that law. That is part of him. People are meant to show God's character. God's people are meant to manifest the very character of God. But to do that, they have to be in relationship with him. They have to be united with Him, brought into a, a union. So to show that character, we have to know Him well. This final section that we look at, which is going to still take quite some time yet, but what it's going to do, it's going to show that there's an ultimate plan that God has for the human problem. And even once the sin is taken care of, there's a sharing of His life And to bring people into a close relationship with Him. To have intimate communion with Him. That's what He wants and that's what He's going to bring forth. He demonstrates how people can come into a closer relationship. As we walk with the Lord on a daily basis, don't we desire even a closer relationship with Him? We know we're not as close as what we'd like to be. There's always that little empty part in the sense that I want more of Him. And He keeps showing who He is all the time. But He wants to show more and more. The glory of God, as far as Israel is concerned, came down to dwell in the midst of them, in their camp. He came into the center of the camp and dwelt amongst them. Like He had never done before like this through all these many people. God knew the needs of the people. He knew they needed to be delivered. But He also knew that they needed a close relationship. And that is something that is wired in every one of us. We all desire to have relationships with other people. Why is that? Well, God is the one who puts that in us to do that so that we can learn even who He is through that venue. But that's a a wiring that He has. And it's something that He's given to us as believers. They needed to know, though, that He was there. How can they relate to Him? He has to do it in a material way. A physical way. A visual illustration, if you may, of the presence of God. Now, no man can see God but yet, in the way that he's going to present this, this is the best way that a whole group of people can see who he is as he brings us forth in a, in a concrete way, I guess you could put it. He wants to express relationship. He wants them to worship him. So thus comes the tabernacle. Now this is a key point in all of the Bible, this tabernacle, which later is called the temple but it has the same stuff on the inside. This allows the people to approach the presence of God in a way that they haven't done before. So we start off in Exodus chapter 25, verse 1. And we're going to start off with the offerings. To build this tabernacle, you're going to have to have material things. Sometimes it helps to have material things so that we can relate to something that's spiritual. We can't see spiritual things But sometimes, as far as our humanness is concerned, we need physical things. That's why we have communion. That's why we have baptism. they are great lessons to show what has happened to us and what God is doing for us. Uh, Let's pick it up in uh, verse 1, and we'll read the first nine verses. The people are going to furnish the things for the tabernacle. It's actually God that's going to do that, but He's going to use the people to give to Him. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of of Israel that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly with his heart you shall take my offering and this is the offering which you shall take from them gold silver and bronze blue purple and scarlet thread fine linen and goats hair ram skins dyed red badger skins and acacia wood oil for the light Spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense. Onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. I'm going to read verse 8 again. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show you, that is, The pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. He's entered into this covenant, now he's wanting them to see how to worship. So, gives instructions exactly how it's supposed to be done. They don't just make it up as it goes along, because if they would, it would turn into idolatry. So the instructions begin with a list of materials so that the people could start contributing to the building of this uh, tabernacle. Now this is not just a list of everyday items that he's bringing forth here that uh, desert dwellers would have. (coughs) We're talking the finest. It consists of precious metals, expensive yarns and linens, the the great colors, the, the purples and the blues, Acacia wood, olive oil, precious stones and gems. I mean, this is the best. So these had to come from somewhere else than just finding all these things out in the desert, right? How are they going to get these things? Well, they already have them. Probably, for the most part, I would say it came from the Egyptians. Egyptians. And you remember that they gathered that up from the Egyptians and uh, a lot of the Egyptians came to their homes and said, take this, take take it, take all you want, take whatever is ours, get out of here. You know, with what all had happened through them through the plagues. And it might have been that as they had also ran into uh, some uh, desert dwellers out there as they battled, uh, actually a, a group of people, and they won that battle. So they probably had some spoils from that possibly. It doesn't really say that. But to imagine, as they had uh, taken this plunder, this, the great uh, gifts that they're going to give to God, there's probably a ton of gold and three tons of silver used in this tabernacle. A ton of gold. Do you hear this? This came from the repository of the world Egypt had a lot of gold. Israel wound up with much of that. Gold and silver, that's a lot of wealth that they start off with. Only God could have done that. These were slaves and instantly, it seems like almost overnight, they wind up having all these possessions. So God is the one who first gives to the people so they can give back to Him. When we realize that everything that we have is actually owned by God, and so when we offer to Him, it's really something that He has already given to us and we give Him a little percentage back. We can only give to God what He first gave to us, right? Go to First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 14. And we'll... See what uh, was recorded there that backs that up. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. It's something you already own, God, as we give back to you. It's yours. Isn't that amazing? God creates everything, and then He gives those things to us to manage, to steward, as you could say. Go to the New Testament, and we'll see. Not only here in Exodus says that it's it's to be given willingly with the heart from everyone. All these gifts are to be given willingly. So we go to Second Corinthians chapter eight, and we see that God has the same principle and it's from a willing heart a joyful heart 2 Corinthians 8 verse starting verse 1 Moreover brethren we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia that in a great trial of affliction the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely, willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift, the fellowship of the ministry to the saints, and not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Then he dropped down to verse 12, and it says, For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. So, you know that puts it all into perspective. We give according to what we have. Some have more, some have less. You give according to what you have. You don't try to match uh, other people because they might have more. It's, it's a matter of what you have. Then Second Corinthians nine seven it says, "So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver." And that's really what took place. As they build the tabernacle, and uh, it's like as you see later on, like even the temple and such, the people bring more than than enough. Stop, stop! <laughs> Can you imagine? Tells them we can't take any more. We've got enough. Wow. Anyway, that's a principle that's taught there in verse uh, two. We keep moving on. We know that uh, God is the one that has everything. They need to build the tabernacle exactly the way that God designed it. We know that where they have gotten those materials, and it's the best of materials, God just doesn't uh, put in just anything, but all the materials were the finest in all the world. God wanted the best as He put in that, that tabernacle. The best use that we can get from worldly wealth is to honor God with the worship of Him. You have spices, you have oil in there, you have... Sights, you have smells you have touch you have taste even the bread dealing with the the priest for instance and of course when the sacrifice is happening the smells the aromas and everything that's going there and uh, you have the incense this was something to take in all the senses God wants them as close as they can get So the whole person is involved when we worship God. He wants our whole body. He wants our whole mind as we worship Him. God furnishes the the pattern here as we look at uh, verse 8. What's the purpose of the tabernacle? I read that twice. Let's read it again. And let them make a sanctuary. Why? That I may dwell for tabernacle among them. That's that's why. The reason for the precision that God has here, the exactness, the way it's to be built, is that He's going to be among them. And He will be with His people in such a great way. Now they're going to abide in this sense. It's an earthly symbol of a greater heavenly reality. These are building blocks. These are pictures that He desires for them to get a little bit of a handle on who He is. And later on, He will go into His fullest revelation, which is Christ in a body. Christ as a man. Here, it's Christ in a building. Then a body. And then whenever He dies and resurrects and then ascends to the heavens, where is His glory now? Now, in His people. The Holy Spirit dwells in God's people. And then one day, the fullest revelation, where we will be right with Him, face to face, seeing Him as He is, in all the glory, and us being glorified too. He just keeps giving more revelation, doesn't He? One day we'll see Him in its fullest. That's what all this is. In these last days, He's revealed Himself. Christ, He's revealed through His Word. We can see Him spiritually. Now we go to part number two now. It's uh, about the ark. God has to be first in all things. As we pick it up in verse 10, we see that the ark is mentioned. He brings up the materials... He doesn't mention the lampstand first or the showbread first, but what is it? It's the ark. This is important. The instructions for the tabernacle, you know, have been given, but when he when he starts with this, showing that the, there's an importance here, it's the only furnishing that's located in the most holy place, the ark of the covenant. It was to stand in the holy of holies, where God's shekinah glory rested. We'll see that word uh, later, shekinah, but it's really the same thing as here. It's it's about the very dwelling presence of God, His shekinah glory. Later on, uh, in the scripture, in the when the temple uh, was built by Solomon, the shekinah glory was there. The glory then later left as shown by Ezekiel. And for like 400 years, there really was no revelation of God. Then the glory came back. But hidden in a way, in a person, in a man. The Holy of Holies, the mercy seat, which sat upon that Ark of the Covenant. It's the throne room of God. It's representing that. Of course, He lives not just in that little tabernacle. But it's definitely representing His presence. Let's go to Psalm 80, verse 1. Many references to this. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who led Joseph like a flock, you who dwell between the cherubim, shine forth. Now in the heavens the cherubim... Are there, you know, in the sense of uh, kind of uh, like a sign of uh, a pr- the presence of God, and um, they have their job to do. And in the tabernacle, we see that there are the cherubim resting over the Ark of the Covenant and over that mercy seat, and they have their wings spread. And so uh, that's what the psalm writer is alluding to there. Psalm 99 1. In a spiritual way, but also a a way that would be recognized in, at the tabernacle. Although the people didn't really see that, they couldn't get back in that area. Psalm ninety nine, verse one says, "The Lord reigns; let the peoples tremble. He dwells between the cherubim; let the earth be moved." I mean, that's an awesome thing. There is uh, the uh, the presence of God represented by the cherubim. Again, they're back there in that tabernacle in a physical way, in you know, a made of goat, <laughs> made by human hands, but given instruction by God. Look in second Kings chapter nineteen. Verse fifteen. Then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, God of Israel, the one who dwells, the key word there, between the cherubim. You are God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. So there's a prayer from a king Hezekiah. At this time, there was a temple made. And God dwelt... In a sense, right there in, in that temple, in the holy place, the cherubim were. And so the king mentions that. Now, what's the significance of the ark of the covenant? Well, we know it focuses on the very presence of God. It's the very earthly symbol of what heaven is, brought down to earth in a way that we can relate. God has to get on a way, in a way that we can understand. There you have a type of Christ and uh, it's representing what uh, Christ did uh, the great offering that he did at the cross. It's interesting I don't want to go into it uh, too much I don't want to read into the text much but some people say well it's made of wood and over it is poured pure gold. So beautiful outside and inside. It's made of wood in that you could see his humanity. Gold would represent his deity. Could be. Interesting to think of. Did God have that in mind? Can't say for sure, but I think it's a kind of a beautiful picture to think of his his humanity and deity there with them. Within the ark, (coughs) the tables of the law, and remember he is going to ultimately give that them, written down, it's their covenant that's made, that's put in there. Then the pot of manna, which is to keep them remembering that he gave them bread to live on, gave them manna, food to live out there for 40 years. How could they ever forget? So that is put in there. And then Aaron's rod, which budded And so those are the elements that are put in the Ark of Covenant and sealed over with this mercy seat. Now the funny thing is, is that even though the people really can't see it while it's in that tabernacle, it was to be carried, but never touched. And you'd have four rings on it, one on each side. It's not that big, maybe four feet by two feet, something like that. I know it mentions cubits and uh, the elements that are put in there, but it's something roughly that size. It's not huge, but it uh, has gold and they are to put uh, rods uh, through these and to be carried, or poles is what they are, to be carried that way, never to be touched. Never to be touched. And that's representing the holiness of God. God is a holy God. He says it. It's in the law. The people know about it. We'll always carry it. Nobody's going to be picking this up and carrying it. We're going to carry it by these uh, these poles. Second Samuel, chapter six. They are moving the Ark of the Covenant. This is at during the time that King there is a King David, and so they're moving these. They don't have a temple yet. And remember, David always wanted the temple. Solomon is going to be the one that does that eventually. But in verse 3, 2 Samuel 6, verse 3, the ark is being brought to Jerusalem. Ultimately, a temple will be built there. So they set the ark of God on a new cart. I just said it right there. They set the ark of God on a new cart. He never told them to use a cart for this. He said, you will have men carry it, we will have poles. It's that simple. We'll never change this. God set forth in His Word that. He brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah. And ahiho the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. They brought it out of the house of Benadab which was on the hill accompanying the ark of God and a he-ho went before the ark. He was in front of it. Then David, there's King David, and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord. Oh, they are joyous. All kinds of instruments of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on cistrums, and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor... Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. It's on a cart. The oxen stumbles. The ark is falling. I want to protect that ark. We don't ever want it to hit the ground. Uzzah does what human reason would do. I've got to save it. The intentions are good. But his actions are against what God has already told him. Just out of that little thing that he did, just that little thing that he does here, which seems like humanly it's a good thing, look what God does. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah and God struck him there for his error and he died there by the ark of God. Instantly. Instantly. This is one of those passages in the Bible where people really have troubles with. And they said, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. For He just tried to save this ark and God struck Him dead. Now, He didn't just do a leprosy thing on Him. He killed Him right there. And you can say, what kind of God is that? Well, He's a holy God. He is just. And to teach the people how holy he is, he does this. He has the freedom to do it. Does this mean Uzzah is not in heaven? Well, I can't make that judgment. I, you know, I, in my humus, I like to think that I, I will see Uzzah one of these days in heaven. You know, was he a believer? Well, he's with the, the chosen people here. Um, but the thing is, uh, you know, they were doing something they were not supposed to be doing, although they probably put it in their head that they did God is the transcendent one. God is the creator. He's the other. But He's not so other that He doesn't get with these people. That's what's amazing. He's the otherness outside of us, but yet He comes inside to us. That's the beauty of this great God. So the holiness of the ark has to be stressed here as we talk about the poles and how it was supposed to be done. Uh, in Psalm 40, verse 6 through 8. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do Your will, O my God. And Your law is within my heart. That is God's law that's written on us. It's it's in our hearts. He always had a promise. The New Covenant really was about putting the law in our hearts, putting it in us. And here we have the, the ark with the tables of the law in there representing that really they were broken people broke the law and so the the law of god has to come into people's hearts and that's how we obey now christ had the law in his heart he was the law i mean He fulfilled the law. The law or the Word of God was to be made much of. And we know that Psalm 119.105 says that, uh, that we hide God's Word in our heart so that we may not sin against Him. This law was hidden in the ark. Like today, it's hidden in our hearts. See all the uh, symbolic uh, thoughts here that bring to an ultimate reality? Some of these things have been fulfilled. The manna would ever be a reminder to them that God took care of them in the wilderness. He fed them. And we'll get to it in a moment. Jesus is the bread of life. Now the mercy seat. We're still dealing with this arc of the... Testimony, the Ark of the Covenant. The mercy seat was the covering. That's a good word for this. The covering of this chest. It's made of gold. This covering is the propitiation. It's a type of Christ. If you have a broken law in the Ark, then you have this covering this over this chest. And the blood is to be put on there. Whenever they have the sacrificial animals, you have the cherubim over above. God's presence is there. And then you have this propitiation. When the blood is put on there, God is satisfied with that offering. The broken law still sits there, but it's covered. Do you see what's happening? It's a covering. A propitiation is a covering. It's also a satisfaction for a holy God. The law has been satisfied. The demands of the law now have been covered by blood for our transgressions. So, that comes between us and the curse, doesn't it? The law... Broken law, you have curse, but the blood covers it. When the blood was out on the cover, here's another key word. We have propitiation. It was an atonement or the covering. An atonement for sin. It was an atonement for the rebellion of the Israelites. That's what it represented. And when you think of what Christ did at the cross, you have a great atonement there. The covering is done. The propitiation. God is satisfied with what has been paid. Christ's perfect life and His death. Go to Romans 3.25 and we'll get the New Testament completion of this. In Romans 3 you have where all men fall short of the glory of God. And you know what the next verse is? Verse 24 and good news, being justified, being declared right freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, a satisfaction by His blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness so god set forth as the very satisfaction by the because of the blood of christ and it's we recognize that through the faith that is given to us we hold on to that and we see that god is satisfied he's been propitiated and there is an atonement there is a covering made christ died for all sins of His people that He died for. that sacrifice. That's, he was the sacrifice. What He's going to do for hundreds of years is going to put that on display at the tabernacle. For 1,500 years the people will do that till it's fulfilled. And that's showing that there will be one coming. Go to 1 John two. 2. We'll get that precious word again. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. It can be like the Jewish people, and even the ones who are believers here. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. All the tribes, nations, tongues that are scattered all over the world. He's the propitiation for the ones of them. What was accomplished at the cross? All the sins of His people were paid for. And there is your so-called limited uh, atonement. In that if it didn't accomplish it, if it just made things possible for all people in the world to die, then He accomplished nothing. He just made it possible. Is there a difference between a possibility and an accomplishment? Is there a difference between it is finished and saying, hey, my work is done, but now it's up to them? Do you get what I'm saying? That atonement, that propitiation, he took my place on the cross, means everything. That um, is the heart of the gospel, isn't it? Wow. So this is what this is teaching the, the people here. Now we have, we go back to our Exodus and we get uh, this picture of the cherubim. The cherubim made of gold. What are they doing in there? Starts on uh, verse 18, I think. 17, to make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits. 18, to make two cherubim of gold, hammered work, you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat, one on each side there. Make one cherub at one end, the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. They shall face one another. The face, faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And there I will meet with you. Wow. Now the cherubim of gold, they're fixed. To the mercy seat. And that's what this is called here. This propitiation. It's it's the mercy seat. Mercy has been given to us because of the blood there. Spread their wings over it. They look at each other and both of them towards the ark while their wings are stretched out. What an amazing thing that must have looked at. They were ministering spirits in the sense to the Redeemer. They're ready to do His will at His beckon and His call. And this could be something that is referred to as being under the wings of the cherubim. Underneath the shadow of his wings. Remember when we sang that song this morning? There was a purpose in that. It's saying that that's where we're at. We're underneath his protection. The cherubim are representing that. Uh, Go to a, a passage and Psalm 57 1. This is underneath the wings of the cherubim, the holy of the holies, right? Psalm 57 1 and 63 7. Let's see what the Psalm writer has to say about this. All over the Psalms you will see that thought. You've heard that many times, haven't you? You've read it. Underneath the shadow of his wings. Psalm 57 1. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. Mercy seat? For my soul trust in You and in the shadow of Your wings I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. Whatever I'm going through, Lord, this is really hard and this is really, it's really tough, Lord, but I know one thing. I'm going to be underneath Your shadow. I'm going to be in the shadow of Your wings. I'm going to take my refuge in You till this all goes by. I'm going to trust in You, right? Isn't that beautiful? Be merciful to me. I think the psalm writer was thinking of this Holy of Holies, which he couldn't get to. But ultimately, it's, it's really underneath the protection of God, isn't it? While you're in psalm, go to Psalm 63. That'll be easy to turn to. 63, verse 7. Isn't this going to give you great comfort? Because you have been my help, therefore in the shadow of your wings... I will rejoice. You guys catch that? I rejoice. I rejoice. I rejoice in you. There's the ultimate fulfillment. See, all these songs, they have, they have purpose, don't they? We don't want to sing songs that don't have purpose. That's quite a teaching, though. In the shadow of His wings. That's where we find our uh, the mercy of God. That's where we find our rejoicing. Just in him. I'll go to Psalm 178. Since we're in the Psalms, let's just kind of deal with the Psalms just for a moment. Okay, is that alright? We, folks, we are in the Holy of Holies right now. We are in the Holy of Holies looking in, you know, at the mercy seat. <laughs> Underneath his shadow. I mean, we're we're in there. We're not physically looking at it. We are in the holy place. That's where we live. Alright? But here they they didn't have the fulfillment. And there's an utter fulfillment of this, but we, you know, boy, we're getting close, aren't we? Psalm 17:8. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings. Protect me, Lord. I'm going through a great storm right now. But I'm going to take this promise, Lord. Do you see why the Psalms were written? each one of us go through winter time in spiritually sometimes there are times when we don't even feel that god is there but we know he's there we know that but it doesn't seem he's there it seems like he took a vacation have you been there sometimes it seems really like the doldrums it seems you know it seems like in a week we might get a couple of hours of sunshine the way it's been lately. And when you get that few hours of sunshine, you just take it in, oh, this is great, and then all of a sudden the clouds come again. But you realize beyond the clouds are what? The sun's always there. (laughs) We just don't see it because of the clouds. It's covered. That's the way life is sometimes. And that's why these psalms are given. And when we get into those times, it's really good to just open this up and see the psalm writer cry out because that's what we do. We all experience that. And it's hard. It's tough, but yet we know He's there. We know He's there. That should give great comfort. He's a great God. How about Psalm sixty-one, verse four? Do one more of these here. Oh, the grace of God! Hear my cry, O God! Attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I will cry to you when my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the rock. That is higher than I. For you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide, look at this, in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. Storms are hitting, they're blasting you all over the place, all around. I'm gonna be in your tabernacle spiritually. And I'm going to trust in your shelter. Yes. I like that. All this is about the presence of God. We have the presence of God. Back to our Exodus. God was speaking to Moses, a man. God is speaking to Moses. It says in verse 1, doesn't it? Chapter 25. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. Now go to chapter 29, verse 42. This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet you to speak with you. As we're going through all of this and as we're building this tabernacle and all that, that's going to happen, Moses I want you to go there. I'm going to meet you there and I'm going to speak to you. He's already been doing it. He's representing like a mediator here. He doesn't speak to everybody, does He, at that time. We know He now speaks to all of us. Through His Word. Chapter 30, verse 6. And you shall put it before the veil that is before the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with you. There aren't any priests that are set up yet, but he says, first I'm going to meet with you. So Moses is like a king and a priest, right? And a prophet, a prophet, priest, and king. He is a type of Christ. Until they get the prophets, till they get the priests, till they get their kings, Moses is all above. And God says, I will meet with you. Then you go tell the people. Mediator. Verse 36, same chapter. And you shall beat some of it very fine and put some of it before, this is incense, the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you right at that curtain, the altar of incense, and that's going to go up showing it's pleasing to God. So Moses is setting this up. We have access to God today like Moses did, and then the high priest and the priest, only much better. We go into the throne room daily. Chapter 10, verse 19 of Hebrews. Therefore, brethren, Having boldness to enter the holiest, that's the Holy of Holies. By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil. There is a veil that's set before you get into the Holy of Holies, and if you saw that picture earlier in that in the tabernacle or temple, you have the pieces of furniture, and then you have all the way back to the back, just before you get to the mercy seat, the veil. And we come through the veil which here is His flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We're sprinkled. The blood has been done. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. Wow. We can go to that throne room. And we can go boldly. We have access, don't we? God was just giving a picture back then. The only access they really had was through that high priest. Now we have full access. Number three, the table of showbread. God not only is present, but He nourishes His people. The second piece of furniture, we've just talked about one piece so far, and it was the most important. What was it? The Ark of the Covenant. Representing the very presence of God. That second piece was the uh, table that bread was put on. The table held the bread. The bread was set out weekly. With only the priest eating it. Now the pagans had something kind of similar. They had their temples. They had their offerings to God and they would bring their offerings to God. It would be edible things that their God was to consume or whatever. They were actually giving food to their gods, placing it out there on the table. I'm sure that the uh, insects and other predators came along and finally partook of that. This is reversed. Here we have Israel not feeding God But God is the one who invites His people to His presence and feast with Him. Come in and feast with me on this bread. That was sustenance. How many loaves of bread were there? How many breads? Twelve. Now, we're in Exodus 25 and I know I'm skipping a lot of verses but let me pick that up in verse 23. You shall also make a table of acacia wood just like the same kind of wood that was made for the ark. Two cubits shall be its length. Uh, close to three feet maybe. A cubit is width. Foot and a half, two feet. A cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold all around you shall make it for a frame of hand breadth all around. You shall make a gold molding for the frame all around. You shall make for it four rings of gold and put the rings on the four corners that are in its four legs. The rings shall be close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold that the table may be carried with them. You shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, and its bowls for pouring. You shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the showbread on the table before me always." always was going to be bread there as long as they had that tabernacle and temple now that reminds us of what Jesus in John 6:26 says I am the bread of life what a statement I am the bread Jesus is the bread Jesus is the bread who looked who took upon himself a human body that He might come to earth and die for our sins that we would partake of Him. And then when we do communion then we see that that's representing that we are partaking of Him in this covenant. That's not really His body, is it? just representing it. No magical formula here. But it does mean something. That physical thing that we do. Now the twelve tribes uh, through these lows the whole nation of Israel is represented before God. God was present with them in their camp. He's taking in their worship and their walk. He's right there in the middle. And everywhere they would go they would take the tabernacle and do as we're told. One last element in uh, this um, tabernacle. It's the lampstand. Are you seeing Christ in all this? That's really what we're focusing on, isn't it? All through the book of Exodus, we're just seeing Christ. The ultimate. That's what He's about. We're pointing to the supremacy of Christ here. The lampstand, and this, I've got subtitled, God Enlightens Our Worship. We'll read this. 31... Verse 31, "...you shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be of hammered work, its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs and flowers shall be of one piece." And six branches shall come out of its side. Three branches of the lamp lampstand out of one side and three branches of a lampstand out of the other side. Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch with an ornamental knob and a flower and three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornamental knob and a flower. And so for the six branches that come out of the lampstand. On the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made like almond blossoms, each with its ornamental knob and flower. And there shall be a knob under the first two branches of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same, and a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches that extend from the lampstand. Their knobs and their branches shall be of one piece. All of it shall be one hammered piece of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and they shall arrange its lamps so that they give light in front of it. And its wick trimmers and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made of a talent of pure gold with all these utensils. And see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. There's chapter 25, the last piece that we're looking at here in this holy Place is the lampstand. It was a symbol of life giving light of God. When you have this holy place with ve- veils and with curtains in it, it's dark in there. You have to have light. And so God has them to make this uh, lampstand out of gold, made of pure gold. There's no wood. The other ones we've seen where there was wood, gold overlaid on them. This time it's pure gold. It was probably, it says a talent, probably right around 75 pounds of pure gold. This was the only way light would be present in there. And it was to be on continually. The priest had to have this light to go in and minister. To get anything done, there had to be light going on in there. In John eight twelve, Jesus says I am the light of the world. They have oil that has to be continually be brought in there. They have olive oil. And they bring that in and continually keep it going. This is the work of the priest. It always went on. They were always they were standing. They couldn't sit down. Their work was never done. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. I'm the bread of life. I am everything to you. Feed off of Him. Well, they were fed by the oil. That this light was. And that symbolizes, I believe, the Holy Spirit of God. How often do you see the, the oil in the lamps? That keeps that going. You have a picture of Christ, you have a picture of the Holy Spirit here. Is any time there's any work that is to be done, it's by the power of God's Spirit. Uh, Spirit of God. Jesus Christ. This is all representing this is how we get to worship God. And in its fullest Christ came in these last days, He has shown who God is. He has revealed Himself. We have the privilege of looking at Christ. We see it in the Word. This was done in a very elemental way, but how else would you go about it? God went about it the perfect way by teaching His people with building blocks. Anyway, as we think of that, feast upon the person of Christ. He is your life, He is everything. He's your light, He's your bread, He's your protection. And we think about the holy place. The blood has been done. We have been given mercy and grace. All His love is there. We draw upon that. The work is done. It's finished. As far as the east is from the west, that's the way the tabernacle is laid out. You come in from the east. You go back to the west. The sins are taken away. When the high priest would come in and put that blood on there, it was for the whole nation. For God's chosen people. That's what has been done. Look at Him. Look at Christ. Father, we thank You.